Heads up, if you're here to listen to Dessa talk more about her music, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. We talk to musicians talking about everything but their own music, which is why I love this podcast so much. I'll admit I'm biased. You tell me what you think. Hey, welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. I'm your host, Ned Buskirk. This is your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. Welcome back to those of you that have been listening for so long or ever at all before this. And uh, welcome to those of you that have never listened to the show before. I know you're there. I just acknowledge you now here. You deserve a moment. Thanks for listening. For whatever reason you're here, whether it's for this episode's guest or because you heard uh, there's a cool podcast out there creatively confronting mortality in community with amazing guests, you know, whatever reason that you're here, we're glad. We're glad you are. But just a real quick recap or nutshell, what is the words? How do you talk about things? <laughs> what is this thing? It, it is a creatively conscious mortality podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and the podcast is produced by our nonprofit. And the mission of our nonprofit and kind of everything we do, including this podcast, is to bring diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, to inspire our lives by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. And we do concerts and open mics and workshops, a lot of stuff in the San Francisco Bay Area, but also a lot of stuff online. And worth mentioning now, because if you're listening from somewhere else and you don't have easy access to the SFBA area for our in-person events, we have a couple things going on online, including a grief release on Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific every Wednesday. It's free. You can join and just listen, and you can also share your own grief. We spend that time together, I think, maybe even unconsciously making meaning from these hard things we go through by making room for them together. So check that out. That's every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific all year long. And then we also have just announced a grief and healing with writing and music workshop that we're starting on May 10th. And that's going for four Wednesdays, 7 p.m. Pacific to 8.45 p.m. Pacific for four Wednesdays, starting the second Wednesday in May. So check that out. And if you need support, financial support to be a part of any of these things, just reach out and ask. You can email us at connect at yg2d.com. Now, speaking of grief and healing with writing and music, I want to focus on that little element, music, for today. There's not a lot more to say about that other than most of what we do has music running through it. It's a major element, a medicinal element, a way to hold one another a way to be held when we've shared a lot or cried a lot. It's also, I think, so powerful for softening and tenderizing us and opening us. So music, if you've been listening to the show for a while or been a part of really anything we do, you know music's a major part of, of what we're up to. And so that's why so commonly we have musicians on the show. And what else do I need to say other than, I guess, to acknowledge another show, Livewire, and the producers of Livewire for what they're doing with their show, their podcast. That's how 
I got connected to Dessa. That's how I found out about Dessa. And I've been following them online for a long time. And now I get to have them as a guest on our show. Dessa is a singer, rapper, and writer who has made a career of bucking genres and defying expectations. She has been published in the New York Times, contributed a track to Lin-Manuel Miranda's gold record, The Hamilton Mixtape, and she's delivered a TED Talk that's notched more than 4 million views titled, Can We Choose to Fall Out of Love? On the stage and on the page, Dessa's work embodies ferocity, wit, tenderness, and candor. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it here on You're Going to Die, the podcast with Dessa. Hmm. I would say, you know, I think that a lot of people draw moral guidance from their faith traditions, which sometimes can create the impression that people without a faith tradition might not have a font for moral guidance. Mm. And and there are naturally like fewer cultural avenues to talk about that stuff, right? It's not like, hey, here's a shared book we all believe in, <laughs> you know, or yeah. here's a weekly meeting to like reaffirm, you know, the, the, the touchstones of those precepts. And so there isn't a really natural place for moral discussion that's generous and genuine mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, didactic and hella judgy um there isn't there aren't too many places where like people engage in to use a complicated phrase like good faith conversations and also i think um yeah i'm also eager to like read about and see a spotlight on atheists of like great moral standing you know that there Mm -hmm. are ways to be yeah like conscientious in the world outside of a faith tradition because we don't talk about that quite as much so i can imagine why you could be forgiven for not knowing exactly how that works perhaps if if your framework is religious well how do you i mean my initial response to that is sometimes I feel like way back when, when I'm like typewriting up my little memes for, for, for social media, one of the things I, I typed up one day was mortality is my religion. And I think in one way I related to that phrase is that my facing this eventual death and not from a place of, well, you know, it'll be okay because we exist beyond this time. Mm-hmm. There will be a place to get to, even if I don't know what it, like, I don't know. I don't believe any of that very like definitively. Um, so what I found is that because of that, I'm trying to make meaning out of what it, what it is to take care of one another. You know, that, that, that like, I don't know that there's much better meaning to life than taking care of one another. And so in a way, I guess that would be my version of, of your query, right? An answer to say, well, because I don't have this, this place that's waiting for me because there's no guarantees. Um, it's, it's, our chance right now just to like take care of one another. Maybe even like it's, it's more clear to me when I, I face my inevitable death than, than anything else has, has helped me get there. Do you, do you have a version of that? Like when you think about moral, uh, fortitude and, and Mm -hmm. what it means to be good in a life, does it connect to like more your mortality or, 
And then also the other question is like, well, what's the journey getting to this question for you? Like, did you grow up religious? Yeah. You know, I think, I think in a lot of ways, the actual behaviors of like generosity, fellow feeling, um, pushing oneself to forgive, even when that hurts to do, mm-hmm. uh, pushing oneself to be self-critical, <laughs> even when that hurts to do. Yeah. Um, I think that, and I, those kind of behaviors are moral and praiseworthy, like irrespective of what faith tradition somebody might come from, or if in fact they come from none at all. So I don't derive, I don't think a moral compass from an atheistic perspective, but Mm -hmm. I think it can be derived uh, without the infusion of like a, a, um, a penalty to be paid in a, in a mm. later life. So in that way, maybe, maybe that resonates with you. Like, I think, I think there are like great reasons to be kind, like as kind as you can be that have nothing to do with any, um, yeah, with any holy texts. Yeah. I think that, yeah, trying to extend the generosity to one another, um, that's something that, is a challenge. I was, I was talking to my bandmate Joshua the other day and he was talking, we were talking about kindness on stage. We were mm. performing for an entire week to like seventh and eighth graders. So I think, oh my a, gosh. It, awesome. yo, it was not the <laughs> kindest audience and it was like not my really? kindest. You felt, like my feelings, you felt that? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I kind of want to know a little more. <laughs> <laughs> Can we take a pit stop on that? I have to hear. Can you just share at least take a little bit of a story or details on what, why? Like, I can't imagine. I feel like uh, the seventh and eighth graders mm. would just be in awe of you walking in in the ways I've seen you perform and oh, show God. up. In a, in a, <laughs> is it? Is it not that no. Oh, no, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, it's like in seventh and eighth grade, we're still, I think, like navigating what it means to be mm. a social creature, right? also like pandemic. So these kids have missed a lot of that, you know, the rock tumbler, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, if I were Lizzo for sure, (laughs) I think that would have been a hundred percent. I don't know. I think you're as cool as Lizzo. (laughs) (laughs) But I think like in seventh and eighth grade, the feelings are big and real and immediate and constant and urgent. So Mm -hmm. like, is my heart broken that somebody wanted to whisper more than they wanted to talk, you know, to attend to a, to a 8 30 AM concert in the gym? Like, no, my heart isn't broken, but, no. <laughs> but after, after a few of those, uh, you're like, dang, yeah, totally. this is tough. Oh man. You know? Yeah. Um, but we were talking about kindness on stage and my, mm. my bandmate Joshua said, you know, there is a, there is a tendency to like miscategorize kindness as a talent, like as an innate feature or function of a personality instead of a skill to be practiced. Mm. And I think the older that I get, like the less moved I am by this idea that like, Oh, but she's a good person or, but they're a jerk. Like, I think it's so much of it really does come down to behavior. Mm. And sometimes people who've been really rad to you were jerks to other people. And sometimes somebody who was mean to you for no reason was really kind to their next door elderly neighbor. So the idea that it's a practice and it's a daily practice and you don't totally get rollover points, you know, it's not a sprint plan. It's like (laughs) an immediate, 
yeah, an immediate unending call to try to be kind and Mm. we all mess up and fall short. Yeah, sure. And to go easy on ourselves. So this is the very obvious question to kind of get by, which is when, when you get, when you say yes to a podcast that you, you know, seem clear, we're talking about a creatively conscious mortality context. Mm. We're talking about death and dying. Why can you connect this particular conversation from your end? Like, why is it like, okay, yeah, this, this, I want to talk about this in that context. I think I've, I think, well, okay, to be totally frank, I think I'm open for a lot of conversations, you know, so I try to say yes when I can, but, um, I think I've always been sort of preoccupied by, by death, you know, uh, not like a total Wednesday Adams, but, but it was a topic that was on my mind ever Mm -hmm. since I was little Mm -hmm. and it's, it's stayed there, you know, if not the very front burner, then a couple burners back. And I think that there's something really strange about the idea of being a mortal creature that knows that she will die. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how many other animals have that as part of their worldview. The fact that we know what's coming, uh, in a very, very broad way. Um, and I think that death and dying to me, like it sucks. It sounds scary. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of like the onus to fill one's life with as much joy, beauty, and generosity as one can to offset a promised challenge at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, we don't, we're not consulted obviously before being born. So it's kind of a game you didn't sign up for. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely get put upon us. as we know. Yeah. God, I feel so confident in that one. <laughs> yes, as <laughs> yeah. far as we know, but I don't know. I'm, I put money I'm on that you. one. I'm with you. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I think it feels like the seesaw is already tilted, you mm-hmm. know? And, and so you, you try to, to amass and to contribute as much like joy and beauty as you can, you know, along the way. Yeah. Well, I wonder in a way that, maybe connects what I was sharing earlier around some of this work that, that I'm compelled to do. It's complicated, right? There's lots of reasons, of course, probably why, why, why I do what I do, but one of them does feel like, Oh, well, we're here with each other. Like it's hard. Why not do whatever we can to help one another? And so I'm wondering if part of what you're getting at too, is a little version of, of, we did not sign up for this and here we are. And boy, there sure is a lot of suffering in the midst. So how not, how how couldn't we be kind, you know, like this is the blip Mm -hmm. we share that overlaps however much it does with the other people on this planet while we're here. And so what a great thing to get to go at eight 30 in the morning to perform in front of this community of kids. But like anything we get to do, especially feeling that like even getting to talk to you, like, the chance, why would not I, why wouldn't I use this window? And I get it too. Like you said, it's complicated. There's times when I've overlapped with other lives and been really shitty and, and mean, yeah. you know, and, and hurt people. Um, but to have the intention that like, this is the window of time and whoever's window of time we overlap with, like, why not be taking care of them or offering generously like our best selves in that window? And yeah, we fail a lot, but why not be trying for that all the time? Cause this is all we have. I mean, I dig, I dig that, but I think in practice it does feel more complicated, which makes it as the lifelong task that it is like being kind 
to a shivering kid is an easier ask than being kind to someone who drunkenly issues a racial slur, Mm, right? mm -hmm. It's when it's hard, right? Like it's easy and effortless to like snuggle the puppy. Yeah, you're right. You know, but when we feel like something meaningful, some particularly immoral feeling, you know, that somebody was, somebody transgressed something important. Okay, now how do we behave? Like, I think, I think that makes it challenging. But to your point earlier, I I do perceive it, the whole project of it being like life. Yeah, yeah, as a project of meaning making. I don't Mm. think that in, for most lives anyway, that we're kind of, you know, set in a bassinet with a, with a purpose folded, you know, like Mm -hmm. into our clenched little fists. I think that's sort of the project of like growing up and finding how to best spend however many years you're allotted. Mm, Yeah. I, thanks for that. You know, I, a couple things I connect just coming from that conference in Phoenix. I, I totally agree with what you just said. I just, in the, you know, this week's episode, I recorded an introduction where I felt like what I, one of the big things I got from being with these exonerees during the weekend was what, what I don't think we have in our culture. Like both were not handed uh, a purpose when we're born. I mean, like most of us, um, I do think sometimes with religion, that's the, that's the, the Bible here, here's your thing. Sure. But like, I, you know, I'm not carrying that. So what am I making? Uh, what kind of meaning am I making out of my time? And feeling like we don't actually have rites of passage set up in our culture, especially in the United States, mostly to maybe do the work of that. And I think my version of it is losing my mom at such a young age you know, and, and however much I maybe need to admit that, okay, somehow I've, I've made her dying matter because of me get, you know, doing this work and maybe I'm tricking myself, right. I'm trying to say like, somehow it, 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 it matters that she did. Like I'm here with you talking to you, like somehow maybe I'm tricking myself, but I do think it's not a bad like trick to trick ourselves yeah. into trying taking something like that and helping others. But what I got from the exonerees this past you know weekend, I think I was really it, it clarified for me that so often and, and the guys I, I'm in San Quentin with, it's like what they've been forced to do sometimes and being the kind of people that have needed to do this is making meaning out of the stuff that they've lived through that puts them into that context and facing the, the, the demons and the things that they're not responsible for, you know, like a system that somehow put them there that also gives me the privilege I have, you know, um, but that they've done more work in that way, like a rite of passage to make meaning and purpose in life than mm. most people I meet out in the world who don't have to really mostly because they haven't been put at that edge. And so I, okay. So I just, th- those are no questions. It's a lot of response. My mm-hmm. question though is like, well, what do you think about that? And what's your version of that? I'm like, what's the story of Dessa getting to a place where some of these things are clear for you or crystallized for you and maybe a right passage? I don't know. You know, I, I think I would agree with you, although I'm no confident historian of like a particularly American America's past nationally and our and the way that our social <laughs> the way that like particularly our social fabric has changed. But mm. I think in really broad strokes, like we have fewer communal 
activities together that might foist us in contact with other members of our community with whom we'd otherwise be um, disinclined to engage. So it's always cool to see your friends, right? And you make time if you can, right? But the idea that like, um, okay, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s or whatever, like here's um, the night out block parties or whatever that are intentionally designed to bring people together who are not already socially stitched together, who live in the same neighborhood. But you think like in the 1950s and 1960s, and, and and in other cultures, like the way that like a family unit might be cohesive. Um, you know, my, my mom grew up Puerto Rican in New York. The whole family stayed, you know, pretty darn close. Now, some of that was kind of an impediment to making choices if mm. it didn't fit that, right? That family value system. But on the other hand, man, you got childcare handy. And if you're going through something yeah. huge, you know what I mean? If you're going I do. Through something, <laughs> I do. Oh my if you're gosh. going through something huge, it's not a secret. You know what yeah, I mean? It's right. hard. It's harder to keep secrets, big dark ones. So I think like maybe part of what I've enjoyed about the kind of work that I do, which is like mostly music or nonfiction, is that it there is a sense of like communal experience. Like those books that I've read that are true stories that are most exciting is when somebody gives voice to an experience that I've had, but haven't expressed as succinctly or when I realize someone else has that experience too. So like on the page or on the stage, you're in real time realizing your similarity to another member of the species or in the, like, you know, in the example of a concert, like there is a, an element of secular church going, we're all there Mm -hmm. feeling the same way at the same time. And we decided to come there and make ourselves available to Mm -hmm. be moved, which isn't what we do when we, you know, when you go to the grocery store, like you've made a, a decision to like, let your ribs be pried open. Yeah. I, I deeply believe in that. You know, I, I I did have a few years of of church time in high school where I was in youth group and 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 going to church pretty regularly, much to the chagrin of my mother. But um, which is strange. Like I was the bad kid because I wanted to be at church all the time. I think she was just worried <laughs> worried that I was getting brainwashed. But um, which may have been happening. But like I need, I do really am. I'm so grateful for that time during those years. You know, imagine being like you describe the community aspect. Like that was Mm -hmm. God. I got there. I didn't realize that was God until later when all that fell apart, fell apart. And I, and it dawned on me, Oh, like God, was that all along? It's what kept bringing me back. Was that kind of community being together, connecting, finding belonging, finding a place to be vulnerable. And so now Mm -hmm. all these years later, like I know there's a connection when I have a, like we have a concert night, you know, in Berkeley this Thursday, like I know what's going to happen there is what you just described, like that togetherness that like, I don't, I don't, I don't love using the word sacred, but you know what I mean? Like that kind of yeah, like I do. I do. palpable, emotional, um, vulnerability, the like letting go, um, that there's something, there's something like I remember getting at church. And, um, so I totally relate to that. And, and can see kindness being like, well, why then kindness fits right into that, especially as a performer. It's like, you're, you're, you, you must be inclined to be that there. I mean, I think, you know, as, as an atheist, I wouldn't, I do feel a big sense of connection. I don't tend to, I don't believe in God. So that isn't part of my understanding of how it all works. But, but I think that even 
sensing that feeling of togetherness that you might have at a concert, I think when it's working at its absolute best, that helps to provide some sort of like mitigating reaction on a conflict that two members of that community might have later. I got to see you be moved by something that I found moving to. Mm-hmm. We had a collective experience. So later when you cut me off in traffic, but I see that you're wearing yeah. the band tee yeah. from where we just came <laughs> it would from. Help. It would I don't help. smash you. I don't smash you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I also know with this, uh, being a performer, that's part of, right. That you might've picked up on that. I went down to LA cause I was seeking that thinking that's where mm-hmm. I could like feed that compulsion. And now it, it turns out that there's so many other ways I've found that in this work, you know, cause there is a performative aspect to certainly like hosting the open mic and, you know, facilitating these grief spaces even, and even doing this event in Phoenix. Like I know part of what has me up there powerfully is that I do have a, a love for that. And, 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 uh, and so then after all these years, some skill at being in that space, but also like, it doesn't always go well. And knowing sometimes yeah. we leave these, these experiences where mostly maybe we get what you described and sometimes, yeah, like you described with this, these seventh and eighth graders, it's like, well, I didn't get that as much, you know, coming out of that, um, that it's not a guarantee. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Cause I think sometimes we, we do talk about art and music in absolutist terms like there's music with hateful lyrics Mm -hmm. there are fights at concerts you know what i mean so i I don't want to be pollyannish about it um and i agree sometimes like the magic just doesn't strike (laughs) (laughs) but on the whole i think the idea of having a collective experience that is emotively salient Mm -hmm. like even you know you look at rock concerts to to coal walking ceremonies, to marathons, like mm-hmm. people moving and fe- and being moved, right? Like yeah. in the same direction together at the same time. There's something about that synchronicity and the recognition in one another of a shared experience that I think I, th- I think can probably help create some cohesion that then you know serves as as guide rails when we hit turbulence mm-hmm. socially. Yeah. Where do you think you've gotten this perspective from what's it built on? And can you go back Mm. to like how you were raised? Like some of you, some of what you're sharing about like your connection to family and, and the values they instilled in you or tried to. Yeah. I would say, um, some of it just has to do with my, my own experience of music, you know, being deeply Mm -hmm. moved by it as a girl, listening to my mother sing at home. She had this beautiful Mm. voice, like very Whitney Houston-esque. And, um, and my father was a classical lutenist. So like the pre, the, like the Elizabethan precursor to a guitar, the kind of thing you'd see like on a tapestry (laughs) of the old wooden guitar. Um, Like a dulcimer and that that kind of. Like a liar or something. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Like a floppy hat and tights. She's playing that like at home, like that kind of instrument. Oh my gosh. And Whitney Houston yeah. belting it out in the kitchen. That's, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, so there was music at home, but mm. I was moved by it. I knew that my parents were moved by it. Mm-hmm. Concert going wasn't a huge part of my of my girlhood. Um, but I think now and then as I, you know, became a performer myself, I mean, I want to be careful not to to overstate it, but you know, when you're watching a performer 
who's the, when the magic is on them. Um, you know, it is an electric room. And I hope that all listeners have been at one where we, they can nod because that is affirmed by their own experience. But you can see waves form in the crowd like, like a field of wheat as bodies like synchronize their motions. And you can, you can see the way that enthusiasm for whatever's happening on stage is electrified and amplified by the enthusiasm of your neighbor as people like, you know, sing along together or, you know, trade lines goofily, you know, w pantomiming one with one another. Like it is a, it's a powerful thing, but mm -hmm. yeah, I was also raised, I, I was unlike you, maybe I was raised religious when I was little. So Catholic was the, was the yeah. name of the game. Okay. Yeah. When I was small, um, which is an intense one. Maybe they're all intense, but <laughs> yeah. In one way or another. Um, yeah. Were like regular church going for like, my, so my parent, my parents split maybe when I, in my teens, early teens. So it was a regular part of my mom's life, mm -hmm. um, more, more than my dad. So dad was kind of, you know, inherited that more culturally, I guess. And, mm -hmm. and my mom, it became increasingly important to her as I got older. So yeah, it's a big, like lasting disagreement and, between me and my mom, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I shouldn't say disagree, but a, a big ideological chasm that's probably one of the biggest of, of our lives. And at first we were really still, graceless about it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, 100. Yeah. 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 Still, but I would say it's not hot. What I mean, God, when I was a teenager, <laughs> yeah. it was hot. Oh, you yeah. know, it's so hot. You want to fight? Yeah. I want to, you want to fight? Because I want to stay up really late and fight. Yeah. I want to fight. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas now I think I, I know it's a source of, of, of sadness for her. And, and mm. I can understand why putting myself in her shoes. Oh yeah. What a drag, right? Yeah. Like to imagine that I've got a secret that would save the, some of the people I love most and they mm. won't take it. That would suck. Mm -hmm. Um, so I try to, and I, I hope that, that in some ways she's got, you know, some sort of generous, complimentary statement of how she sees me, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, I'm sure yeah, she does. Yeah. So, but that's a big deal. I, you know, I feel like, especially with my, my mother-in-law, that was a thing, even at the end, you know, it's like her trying mm -hmm. to make sure we were good, you know, can you just imagine? Yeah. Oh, I remember in high school too, like when I was deep in that, I, I think I was like, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. I think it's like proud of how I was Christian. I wasn't like going to school and, you know, telling everybody they were damned. Um, but I was feeling it. And yeah. so I'd have friends that a lot of dear best friends of mine who weren't going to church and weren't involved in the church like I was. And it was a, it was something I carried. And I remember having moments just breaking down one friend in particular, just like, I don't want you to go to hell. And it's like, Oh, and to have a parent holding that, you know? Yeah. It's big. So big. It's big. Um, I would say that, you know, in practice, so irrespective of how we sort of like, you know, if you think of like a mathematical proof, irrespective of how we derived what the rules of a good life or, or the, the principles of a good life might be. It's like, they're not that far off sure. in, in a lot yes. of ways. Right? right. Like there's some big, there's some big discrepancies. Like is, you know, is premarital sex a sin? Yeah, there that are, one just there like floats by ones. me. I yeah. don't like no flag on play, you know? Um, yeah. But you know, the, the precepts of, 
compassion, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, the general and, ones and, and goodwill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we get aligned. <laughs> <laughs> the like largest font headings. I'm with it. Hey, everybody. Per usual, we just want to take a quick moment in the middle of the episode to encourage you to support us in the simplest of ways. And I've asked producer Nick Jana to join me for this effort. Nick Jana, how are you? Not not per use. Oh, yeah, not per, per use. Well, use. We like to pepper your presence here into the midst every now and then. Um, Nick, you seemed really upset when you looked at the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I want to check in about that. I want to make sure you're okay. What's going on? Well, uh, here's the thing. There's a big number at the top, and it's, I assume, an aggregation of all the reviews that have been given out of five stars. Uh And that number says 4.9. And, I mean, we're not Uber drivers, so it's not like we're going to, like, lose our jobs here. But, um, (sighs) wow. There's you know, no way of getting back to five, just statistically speaking, like you could never get there. It's always well, going to be 4.9. Okay. First of all, I am, trying to become, <laughs> I am trying to become an Uber driver. I'm oh. using this to get to that career path. So it does matter. Um, Does that work? There. You just take your ratings to apply for Supposedly that? it's a new program that they're doing. Okay. But, um, cool. Second of all, I want to say how deflated I, I just got hearing this really disappointing news but I feel like there's a little bit of hope here and that is that recently we had a big push on Spotify I think we were going for like over 100 reviews and I want you to know like you may be right eventually we cannot get to five but while we were going towards that goal of 100 it kept oscillating back and forth between 4.9 and 5 so it makes you wonder if we somehow got enough five-star reviews just moving forward, it's just all we got, maybe we can mm. tilt, just tilt the scale just I enough. guess they probably round up. Yeah, I don't know why I said that. Yeah, they probably round up. Well, let's sure. just, let's. that's our effort today. That's our main goal is to hit 5.0 after everybody listens to this episode. This is important stuff. It is so huge. Like <laughs> Nick and I, when we first talked about it, Working on the podcast together, it was like ratings, ratings, ratings. Like it's really mainly what we care about. And um, mm-hmm. like death and dying, creativity, music, blah, 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 blah. You know, you have to have content, but ratings, that's what we're after. And reviews. Yeah. Do you want me to read some of these? Yeah, sure. Witchcrafty says more of this. A beautiful and honest conversation about death and art is exactly what we need more of in this world the music, the mm-hmm. vulnerability, the trust. All of it is so nourishing. Thanks, Witchcrafty. Yeah, I think that's we're, a good one. Uh, we've been going on a, like a witchy run with our guests. We, we have, might be getting, geez, what was it, like five guests that have been yeah, in that demographic? Pretty cool. Giggle Bliss says, sincerely lovable, not just another white guy. Uh, <laughs> wait, are you wait, serious? I don't know if that means the, that person is or we're not. Wait, oh, wait, yeah. I didn't, I didn't read that. Is that real? Okay, wait. Let me start over. Sincerely love. This is giggle bliss, by the way. Uh, sincerely lovable, not just another white guy. That's the headline, and then it says Ned is a delightful <laughs> and kind human, oozing love. Oh my gosh! So grateful that you, he, 
is with me, us, in this rendition of Living and Dying. Thank you mm. for showing up with and for Sacred Death Ned. Mm. Uh, hands praying emoji. Blessings wow. for your spark sparkly heart may it shine every morning. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was so sweet. I definitely didn't see that. Um, I guess this just in, y'all. I'm not just another white guy. Nick, want to read one? <laughs> want to read one more? <laughs> my other white guy uh, friend. Gordy Cookie says, L-O-V-E, death, it's coming for us. It's guaranteed. We need to talk about it and have a cry and a laugh too. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Not so specific about the podcast, but it's like they're just rating uh, death. It's like, yeah, I mean, death death needs the rating. (laughs) Five stars. Let's get it. Unimpeachable. Just that's right. Such an inevitable juggernaut. Five stars, death. Yeah, what is death's rating? Well, uh, let's let's just hope that death's Better rating five. is five. <laughs> yeah, right. We're going for five on that, and we're going to just say that the ratings for five for this podcast somehow connect to death in general, getting a solid five. So that's our request, inspired by some sweet shares from our community. Thank you, all of you, for the reviews. Thank you for the stars. We're looking for five stars, definitively, people. If you can take a moment right now, Nick Jana will hold you with a little bit of his wonderful music when we're done talking here go off into your app especially apple Podcasts, but spotify lets you rate as well and i imagine whatever podcast app you use it may be an option go there click five stars leave some words to let us know how the show's going for you thank you so much being a girl for whom morality was enormously important, which isn't to say that I hit the mark all the time. It was just a really, really, really important lens through which I saw the world. Were Mm. things good or not? Maybe that's in a way sort of fostered by, you know, the Catholic tradition for what I see as a pretty fallible tradition in a lot of ways. It does foster a lot of uh, self-reflection. <laughs> you do look, you do look for ways in which yeah. you didn't hit the mark. The Catholic guilt thing, right? No matter so, what, like even if you hadn't fully bought in, it's like, you're going to be doing missed. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But better that than self-aggrandizement maybe. So, sure. so morality was at the fore. I was a little kid. That, I would say the first benchmark was probably leaving the the faith. So I was probably 13. Oh, wow. I thought I don't understand why any of this would be true. I understand why some of the calls for some behavior would hold, but I don't think I'd buy it. So left, the next big step for me was the next two happened concurrently. Um, my Before that though, real quick, I want to say you, oh, yeah. you left, yeah, yeah. you went, you told your parents, like, I'm not going anymore. Like that was, it was something like that, right? I'm out. Yeah. yeah. I don't, oh I don't think this is cool. I don't, I don't think. And partly it's, I mean, you know, for, 
you don't have to dig too deep in the Catholic tradition to look for some pretty serious moral failures within the institution, (laughs) right? Sure. And so, yeah, I was like, you know, when I was a teenager, so I wasn't totally graceful. And I was like, not only am I out, I think this is like bad, mm-hmm. right? So it's a huge, yeah, it's a huge mm-hmm. rift. The next big steps, um, I decided to study philosophy and to study ethics. So that for me helped give name to some ways to think outside of faith tradition and to compare like all the ways through history that people have argued, yeah. this is how we ought to live. This is how we ought to treat each other. And here's why. And there's a lot of competing ideas. They argue ferociously for them. Mm-hmm. That was dope to me. Um, You'd be doing that in high that, school already, or this is like legit studying once you're getting into college. I just, I just kind of learned that it existed in high school. I didn't really know what philosophers did. I don't think, uh, which I don't, which I don't think a lot of us do. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, I, before then, I sure like, don't. Well, how yeah. do you spend your day? Um, <laughs> yeah, but just yeah, I, I, I majored in philosophy. Hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, the only visual exactly. I got. Yeah, I have a granite plinth that I spend a lot <laughs> yeah, of time. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Um, and then my father, one of my father's best friend, uh, became very sick. And my dad decided to help him, to help him die at about the same time. That was a really formative experience, I think, for me. Like, um, my dad's marriage didn't survive that. And, yeah, and watching what good care he took, watching how much that care took out of him, what love looked like when it was expensive. Um that that was a big deal to me and 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 whether or not i realized it i think it was a model and then i got very sick um when i was 23 so had an ovary removed and and, and ended up doing a very brief but formative um stay in a mental hospital mm-hmm. and after that being kind of already death obsessed and now i'm like death obsessed on msg um <laughs> I wanted to go to India to see how death looked there. You did. So, That's what you went there for that. I did. Yeah. Wow. So I like on the Ganges. I love you're ending river. with the lead. This is the, this is, these are the things <laughs> I want to dig in. I got seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, standing. <can> I, <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Standing. Go ahead. Standing in the Ghats and the Ganges river, watching the, funeral pyres mm-hmm. and I'd heard I was like is it the case that anyone's faith is so strong that nobody cried that you are just generally happy when somebody dies and I was watching so intently that I'm, I didn't notice a man came up to me and he said if you have questions I'll answer them and I looked over and he gestured towards my clothes and he said human human dust because I hadn't noticed but like all musicians I wear black almost all the time oh my and goodness. I was covered in human ash and he said, ask questions. And so I said, is it true that, that no one cries? You know, cause I, I'm sure I'd read that in a book, you know, something stupid, but he was just like, well, crying is prohibited. Uh, you know, at least in some of the ceremonies that were happening. And oh I thought, I've Oh, heard that. Wow. and then if you have to prohibit it, there's still an impulse. And it was what I took from that. <laughs> you know, I'm just clutching at straws, but yeah, he explained you know, that the rich could afford sandalwood and that was why some fires smelled wonderful and that his family had kept some of the sacred funeral pyres burning. He was a dom, which is an untouchable caste in India. And his family had kept some of the funeral pyres going, according to him, for thousands of years. And he knew how much 
would, by looking at you, it would take to give the perfect burn. So that for a woman, that meant I think a little bit of her pelvis was left. And for a man, maybe a little bit of the ribs, if I remember correctly. Oh my gosh. So yeah, for a death-obsessed, you know, early 20s, um, yeah, that trip to India was mm-hmm. was formative for me. Did you go to your dad's friend's bedside? Like, were you involved at all in communicating with him or in, in, in the space of his dying? Very little. I mean, he would come over to our, to our place, you know, so I was, uh, to the, I lived in with my father and my brother in a one bedroom apartment in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I grew up. And he would be there sometimes, but in the, yeah, in the end, I wasn't, I was not in the hospital space with him. I remember going to his funeral where my dad eulogized him mm-hmm. and my dad took his shoes off before he went. And my dad's a really like talented public speaker. He took his shoes off. He went up, he eulogized Paul and they were both aviators and my dad's a glider pilot, as was Paul. And so he spoke really eloquently about the time they'd spent together. Mm-hmm. But then when he came back to sit next to me, I asked why he'd removed his shoes. And he said it was because he had a fear of heights, just like the the, the height of the heel of his shoe was enough to make him woozy. So mm-hmm. he said, I knew I could get up there. I knew I could do right by mm-hmm. Paul. But I knew I just couldn't do it in those shoes. <laughs> Not that high. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just hitting all the things in the last minutes. Um, thinking about the medical stuff you went through and and the time in the ho- the hospital. You know, like, can you say more about that? Do you feel like it, or do you not really want to go there? Yeah. You know, I had. Um, I was 23 when I went to a doctor's appointment for something else and found out um, that I had an ovarian tumor. And so when they first detect that just by palpit, you know, by touching it, essentially touching mm-hmm. your abdomen, mm-hmm. um, it's unclear about what sort of tumor it might be. But of course, the first thing that you're afraid of when you hear the word tumor. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, is, is that it would be malignant, is that it would be cancerous. So I went home and I was really afraid to tell my parents because I had been irresponsible at 23 and hadn't like procured good medical insurance or anything. So I knew it was going to be so expensive. Yep. And I wrote a will on a, you know, eight and a half oh by 11 gosh. sheet of paper, just, 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 just in case, yeah. you know. Um, because you only find out what sort of tumor it is after they take it out. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, went into surgery and the intent had been to do a laparoscopic surgery, which means that they make little holes, little and lots of little incisions. Um, but they were unable to do that as the surgery progressed. So when I came to, I had a pretty serious, um, incision, Kind of like any like vertically, which is a big deal because or a larger deal because it means they have to cut the abdominal muscles. Whereas if they do it like a C section in Mm -hmm. parallel with those muscles, it's a slightly easier heal. I'm Mm -hmm. told. Um, But yeah, big, big deal, you know. So you connect that premenopause. 
experience yeah. to going into the, you see, would you call it mental hospital? What did you call like the time spent with getting that? I, I did. Yeah. And it was pretty clearly connected in that mm-hmm. when for a woman, when you lose an ovary, sometimes it takes the other ovary a while to realize it's alone in the room. Mm. So you get a decline like in, in the hormones that ovaries create, which is dramatic will be the word that I use. <laughs> like spins yeah. you oh, the F out for me. It's spun wow. me the F so out. So definitively connected, even like physically connected. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, I got a great, you know, but I, I, in the, in that, in those weeks of recovery, you know, feeling myself slip pretty hard and, and even in the years since, you know, earlier you said that losing people, you know, even just losing relationships and mourning those is its own kind of, you know, there's a, there's a parallel to mortality there. Yeah. And I think also in aging, you know, just mm-hmm. as we lose vitality, whether that's like hand strength, you know, or yeah. looking in the mirror and finding someone that we don't quite recognize in a way that we might have hoped to. I think that that's also like little tiny death practice. Yeah. 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 Um, I know it's two, but I'm going to just ask you one more question. You could be like, nope, yeah, I'm sure. out. And sure. I mean it, Dessa, you're going to have to just okay. disrespect my disrespect. <laughs> Cause I'm just like, <laughs> oh, I feel like we just got into some of these like really precious bits of, cause I'm, I'm thinking all along the line, like talking about my mom, like, like, do you, do you, uh, does it resonate with you when I say like, that's the rites of passage, like that's where you were making meaning, you know, like mm. at least, you know, some, some, some of the moments in your life, like that's what I, it feels like that's what I've been talking about. Are you mm. like, yeah, for sure. That was a rite of passage for me or, or do you not think about it in those, is it, is it out of reach to think about it in those terms or. I think, I think about it at least in related terms, it was a pivotal turning point. I think sometimes of rites of passage is more universal. So those would be touchstones we might all experience. Whereas, you know what I mean? Some of the like definitive moments in your life might not have a neat analog in mind, but I also think of those points as moments where the, the circle of my empathy, meaning like the radar, how far it reaches and how wide it is expanded and who is included in it have been forcibly broken and widened. I can't remember if it's Rumi or Rilke, but, but that like, like something to the effect of like, it, life will break your heart again and again and again mm-hmm. until it's open. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I, can, I can just imagine a universe, although I didn't love that. I, that, that experience freaked me out. Uh, you know, some like legit moments of, of existential panic and trauma and the like, but I can imagine a universe where maybe I didn't experience that. And my nose turns up too readily at people in the throes of their own crisis, like where, yeah, like I'm just not nice as nice because someone falls outside of what I understand to be Mm -hmm. like moral consideration. Yeah, that's good. That's good for, that's the full circle, you know, like that's like, yeah, having gone through that back to the first question, you know, like what you put in the Google form. It's like, why be kind? Well, mm-hmm. I, you know, I mean, people were kind to you during that 
time. I'm mean, oh sure you can, like God. list the people, you know, like community, nurse, whatever. But knowing like, ugh, we can't get through that stuff without people being kind, you know? A hundred percent. I think without the intervention of friends, family, and physicians, it's like, you know, the last place that I was was in the wheel well of an automobile, right? Before somebody mm-hmm. came to get me where your feet go. Yeah. So yeah. Shout out to Dr. Rush. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for sharing all that. Um, can I just say before we go, like, did it feel like, is that again, you're going to be like, shut up about it. But I'm like, that's the stuff mm-hmm. that I, if I'd known and, and whatever I could research, I, I didn't find like that part, these parts of your story, but those are the mm. things, right. That I'm like, kind of wonder, will we, will we get to those things and making no assumptions that we all have these long lists, even though being human it, it inclined to, to have some, but you know, I, I guess I'm saying like, what is there a party? It's like, well, that doesn't fit into this mortality conversation. You know what I mean? Like, is there a party? It's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't belong here. Or now I see the connection or I purposely didn't put that in the Google form. Cause I didn't know if I wanted to talk. Oh, I see what you're you know saying. What I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, no, totally. I think, I think all fair game and in some ways the mortality question is such a large one that I feel like I'd be hard pressed yeah. to find some content that in some way didn't participate <laughs> yeah, right, right. The, the framing we of the question. Yeah. Mortals. Yeah. So everything. Yeah, uh, exactly. And everything we do is as mortals, right? Like exactly. every experience is informed by that. I hope I'm wrong. After all, I keep your diamond ring on my necklace I don't keep much close to my chest Poured a little bourbon out for you Got scolded on the porch for wasting booze Said it was something kids my head to do Dan got up, poured some too Choked up, riding in the backseat Dad at the wheel, staying tough if you ask me He's always at his best when the blade's right up against his neck When the sh- goes wrong, man, comes correct Gets no better than the way you went Money in the bank, sun's around your bed I know, I should feel lucky But I'm just feeling spent Last thing you said was you'd be watching out for me And we both know that I don't believe that To be true, string of beads to me Rosary to you Different circumstances had the same set of questions, all different answers. And if we could have traded places, maybe we'd exchange whole lives. Maybe you'd be here in lights and tears. And I'd have been the bride raising kids with my hair swept up and my goals pushed to the side and making do singing lullabies. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're up there after all. I keep your diamond ring on my necklace. I don't keep much close to my chest. Poured a little bourbon out for you Got scolded on the porch for wasting booze Said it was something kids my head to do Dan got up, poured some too That track, oh, Jesus. 
sorry. <laughs> hey, sorry, y'all. Uh, Nick, just a sec. Uh, that track is from Dessa. It's called I Hope I'm Wrong and wonderfully connects to the conversation we shared. Dessa told me that that song is about her hoping that her grandma is right, that her belief system means that they somehow will be together, be it heaven or wherever, in the afterlife. Thanks to Dessa for being a part of the show and being willing to talk with me here about stuff that I care about more than anything. If you want to find out more about what Dessa's up to, go to at Dessa, D-E-S-S-A on Instagram. You can also find her on Twitter at Dessa Darling and Facebook. And the website for Dessa is DessaWander.com, D-E-S-S-A-W-A-N-D-E-R.com. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. Nick Jana. <laughs> yeah, you could leave it on the porch. No, you could no, you don't have to knock. Just leave it on the porch. Oh, just a second, Ned. Um just leave it on you the porch. A, you get an Amazon pocket package right now. <laughs> Is that real? Is there someone trying to get can into you, your house, dropping you a box? <laughs> can, oh, it's a drone. Oh, it's a, it's one of those drones. Oh, yeah, you, they don't respond. They don't know what you're saying. They're just yeah. a robot made to okay. drop it off. Just um, a friendly red light on my forehead. Have you seen one of those before? The robots no. dropping packages off. Okay. Do they exist yet? Well, I, I I don't know. I've read a thing. I will tell you that in the hospitals at UCSF, there there are robots that do that. And people like stick little eyeball stickers on them and they cruise the hallway and they yell at you if you get in the way and they take up a lot of room in the elevator. It's real. Real presence. I went to a sushi restaurant with a robot waiter. Oh. Um, they didn't. Whereabouts? It was not in Oakland. It was the mm-hmm. least assuming sushi restaurant. It wasn't like a gleaming, fancy new one where <laughs> you would expect a robot. Looking, right. <laughs> it was a pretty like sad, empty restaurant. And then <laughs> we sat down. No, no, no fanfare, no introduction. Just this oh. robot comes up to us with our order. Wait, like We're did like, you go in not no, like not expecting a robot? Yeah. Oh, you would never gosh. suspect this restaurant that is, would have. That would be, be the my place favorite way robot. for it to happen. That's awesome. Yeah, and it just came up, and I was with <laughs> Otis, my stepson, and we were both just like, what? And then afterwards, I was like, just remember the first time you saw a robot waiter when it becomes common when you're in your 60s. Otis must have been stoked. It was pretty cool. Yeah. How depressed are you about AI? Oh, geez. That's the big assumption in that question. (laughs) Very loaded. Um, I'm okay with it. I'm not depressed. I I think like a lot of things... I I do think in a way connected to my relationship with death, there's this experience I have with that stuff where it's like everything ends, you know, like the way we're hung up on, well, the AI is using our artwork and, you know, I get the upset, but, and, and, you know, admittedly, I'm not, I'm not having any AI asking to use my content as far as I know, but, or integrating my artwork, but also I do think it's like, that's next. That's what's next. And, and it's, it's wild, actually. I talked to someone who works with the government. This is real. I've been kind of mm. wanting to talk to you about this, Nick. Um, he works in AI. And I, I got to have, have dinner with him recently and, and his wife. They're, they're like good, good friends of mine. And he scared the hell out of me with some of his <laughs> talk about what he's seeing and, and what they're expecting with AI. And his relationship to these inevitabilities like AI, maybe for example, creating a 
a virus to get us out of the way. It could be for any reason, not because they want to like run the planet and are tired of us. It could be because a, a robot eventually is like, you know what? Uh, the oxygen level here is, is imbalanced. Like it just might get stuck on something or it, it could be that uh, packages aren't getting places fast enough. So the AI might decide less people will help that the packages get to their places like your own home, Nick, quicker. And it just will get it to, in its in its programming, kill all the humans. And so there's no telling why this will occur if, if and when it does. But what I loved about him sharing this, that it scared me. And, you know, we were talking about, of course, death and the end of things. And then inevitably, like our own lives, the way we are in a society, like the way we think, like a country should work or a globe should work, like all these things will end. And to have a relationship with these things, not that we shouldn't stop it or do everything we can to, but the AI thing is like, this is definitive. Like this, this, this is going to up level. This programming will up level. There's no stopping it. So just like our own inevitable deaths, there's like a, well, I'm just going to enjoy being here and loving other people and, and taking care of people while I'm here and doing what I love. And, and it all comes back to like, that's just how life is in general with death imminent. So there you go. That's my feeling. <laughs> Do you expect that's all that? Depressing, inspiring thing. <laughs> it's both. It's both. <laughs> Perfect. What about you? Well, I, I grew up as you probably did watching the Jetsons. And so I was kind I, of expecting I didn't a watch the Jetsons. I did grow up during that cartoon being on, but I never really got into it, but you watched it. Well, okay. Things like that, that predicted a future of robots will be here to take all the drudgery out of life so that you Mm. can do the things that are great that humans love to do, you know? Yeah. And how did we get to this point where we don't have a dishwashing robot, but we have like AI making paintings, you know? Yeah. And poetry. Like that's what's great about being a human. And I, it's not even about like being threatened that they're going to like replace me as my, as a poet or whatever. It's just like, why did we put, why are we putting all this effort into that when like, I, I would like a dishwashing robot. Please. <laughs> well, listen, Nick, like, that's I, a thing I that just, nobody loves I, I doing. <laughs> I want to update you. Um, they did There's a dishwashing robot. A dishwashing robot is called a dishwasher. And you no, just put it <laughs> come on. I'm talking about like, you finish what you're eating. You like throw the plate in the <laughs> air. The robot ima- catches yeah, you're, it. You're imagining the robot that's got like eight arms. Yeah, just octopus robot. It, it catches the plate wh- however you throw it. Um, <laughs> this, this technology exists. I've seen a robot that can make it so that you can't possibly miss a basketball shot. Have you seen this? You shoot a basketball wherever, and the hoop like oh, it, it meets the ball. Wow. No. So I like seen this, that. this exists. Like you can mm-hmm. have this in your kitchen. It might take up a lot of space, but. Yeah, finish your dinner, throw the plate in the air, it catches it, cleans it, sterilizes it, puts it back on the shelf. Don't, yeah. don't we all want that rather yeah. than like, look at this gimmicky poet writing AI? Like, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's anything to make life um, less work and so then easier that long stretch before we eventually die. As many robots as possible to help help during that time. I'm with you. I'm into it. I do remember an episode of the Jetsons where Rosie, the robot made turned evil, like her switch switched. Ooh, <laughs> and yeah. she got these like dark red eyes and she was like cleaning <laughs> yeah. quote unquote everything, but like, that's it. 
to a terrifying degree. Um, and her, <laughs> yeah, her thing that she kept repeating was there's a place for everything and everything in its place. But she was mm. like evil robot and she was mm-hmm. like putting the children in the garbage and stuff. Yikes. Um, so that's yeah. confronting. I feel like that's me just being OCD at home with my own children. <laughs> there's a place for everything and everything. Uh-huh, exactly. Put your damn bag yeah. away, clean your lunchbox, just get it in its place. Um, I appreciate Rosie being that committed, but yeah, I think it, you cross a line and lives get threatened. Um, well, they just, they found the evil switch in the back and they switched it back. Oh, it so. just was a switch in the back. That's what I remember. <laughs> this, I saw this 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the things we get to when we make room to talk about death. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Thanks again to Dessa. And thanks to all you listeners out there. Contact us if you've invented a robot that cleans dishes. We need you. <laughs> and we need your robot. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.